Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. Remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Catherine Beck Johnson. She serves as the Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Study at the Family Research Council. She also assists in pro-life and religious liberty legal analysis. She served as the legal extern in the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy. And just so glad to have you on today, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we got a little case before the Supreme Court uh, called Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health, Women's Health out of uh, Mississippi. Um, and, you know, by all right, this could really be the one thing that topples Roe versus Wade. But I'd like to get your perspective on just the case in general, how strong a case it is. And we'll kind of, you know, get into some other specific questions. But what's your kind of read on uh, this case? And does it really have the ability, if the Supreme Court justices um, desire to really overturn Roe versus Wade? Yeah, this is a huge case. I really, you cannot overemphasize just how important this is. Mississippi passed a 15-week ban that is outlined any abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And this was really passed as a direct hit and challenge to Roe and Casey. Under the current abortion jurisprudence framework from Casey, you cannot ban abortion prior to viability. 15 weeks is known and accepted that unborn children are not viable outside of the womb at 15 weeks. So this really was taken, this was passed by the Mississippi legislature, signed by the governor to directly challenge Roe and Casey. And it will do just that. And so this very much has the potential to undo all of the damage that Roe and Casey have done. And we are incredibly optimistic about it. So uh, the attorney general, Lynn Fitch, she really wrote a strong case. I mean, she is didn't just set, you know, this just didn't get accepted to the Supreme Court and like, hey, let us do this in Mississippi. She really wants to overturn Roe versus Wade, doesn't she? And she really filed, uh, I don't know if it's called a motion or what she ended up filing to really say, look, you guys need to look at this in terms of Roe versus Wade and really get rid of that. Exactly right. Her brief was so strong. And I really do want to just commend the attorney general and the state solicitor general, Scott Stewart, who's the top appellate attorney for the state. And what they did in their brief, you know, there was a lot of unknowns of what they were going to ask. Were they going to even ask the court at all to overturn Roe? Was it going to be a little footnote preserving the question, saying, throwing out there, okay, court, if you want to overturn Roe here, we're just going to throw this in. They went above and beyond. The entire brief went after Roe versus Wade, called it for what it is, wrong, wrong from the beginning. It's wrong today. It has caused irreparable harm on our country, the Constitution. And so we were just overwhelmed and so thrilled at what the state of Mississippi did and how boldly they went after taking down Roe and Casey and just brilliantly fought for the unborn to be able to be protected. Now, you guys uh, filed an amicus brief, too, if I'm not mistaken, and really, you know, kind of, hey, this is right. This is, I mean, kind of following the lead of what Mississippi did uh, in terms of asking them to overturn Roe versus Wade. How effective are amicus briefs? 
It definitely depends. They can, some can be incredibly helpful and some not as much. We worked with the Consvoy Law Firm, which is a very talented Supreme Court shop law firm in the D.C. area where they have been actually cited many times before in Supreme Court opinions. So Mississippi only had so many words that they could file in their brief before the Supreme Court. There's a limit. And so with that, other amici can step in and fill in some other arguments that maybe there wasn't enough room for in the Mississippi's brief. So With that, we could go a little bit more in depth, and that's where it can be really, really helpful. And justices often will cite amicus briefs in their opinion if it's making an argument that Mississippi wasn't permitted to due to constraints, but was a really strong point that the justice really wanted to hone in on. So it's not unusual for amici to be cited. They're often cited in Supreme Court opinions, and there they're just very, very helpful. So do the just are the justices obligated to read the amicus briefs? Is it just something they can if they want to and some do and some don't? What is there any obligation for them to even go over them or have their clerks go over them? It's pretty understood that the clerks will review them, all of the briefs, and see if there's anything in it that they will recommend to the justices. I'm sure every chambers is different exactly how they break down the workload. I would think that most of the justices are not reading every single one, but I think that the clerks certainly are going through and recommending certain ones to the justices. Well, we all know that Roe versus Wade basically somehow miraculously came up with this constitutional right for abortion, which, you know, I've never seen it in the Constitution and neither has anybody else. But somehow they were able to read between the lines, even though it wasn't even an issue when they uh, when they put this together. So overturning it is really just righting a wrong that's lasted for 50 years, isn't it? Exactly right. There's nowhere in the Constitution that states a right to an abortion. When the framers were writing the 14th Amendment, giving the due process right, they were never in a million years thinking that this would be utilized to have for women to be able to obtain abortions. And further than that, for states to be absolutely forbidden from protecting unborn life. And so it is completely unconstitutional, and it's time that that is rectified. Now, you know, not only, you know, we were talking about the amicus briefs, you know, that you filed, and, you know, several people have fought, several different organizations have filed in support of this Dobbs uh, versus Jackson Women Health. Uh, but there's those that are, you know, are panicking, right? We even had, I think it was, was it 500 women athletes? That said, this will, this will, um, I don't know if it'll ruin, but this will greatly impact women's sports if women athletes can't get abortions. And the, and the ones leading the cheers on this are uh, a lesbian couple who this wouldn't even affect anyway. Yeah, I also found that very bizarre. And I just, I have a piece coming out today, actually, writing exactly on this amicus brief. And it just, it furthers the lie the abortion industry has just been furthering since the very beginning that a woman needs an abortion to succeed. And in my piece, I talk about, you know, there are realities of pregnancy that might limit women. I myself, when I was pregnant, was bedridden for six months with extreme morning sickness that lasted all day. 
uh, for six months. And so if I had been an athlete, there'd been no way that I could compete at a professional level. But that doesn't justify taking the life of the child. And if a woman has to forego nine months or a year of training, that should not set back her entire career at all. And that's very much what the abortion industry tells women is if you don't kill your child right now, you will forever be unsuccessful. We know women such as Serena Williams have one title pregnant, and we know that women don't need abortion to succeed. I mean, even most recently, the Olympics were postponed a year because of COVID, and all of those Olympians had to postpone competing by a year, and they did, and it was okay. So even if a woman has to postpone her dream by a year, that doesn't justify killing your child at all. And the right to life is more important than any other career ambition. Well, I mean, we have science on our side, right? We have medicine on our side. We have logic on our side. We have obviously the faith on our side. I mean, really all they have is lies. I mean, and really, and the selfishness of, hey, it's all about me and nothing's going to stand in my way. And that's, and somehow they try to, you know, massage that, but that's, Deep down, that's really the message. It's all me, myself, and I are my three favorite people. And if a kid comes along, then you know it's up to me to get rid of them, and I'm and I want to do it. It really is a, such a selfish act that's been going on for fifty years. I mean, the 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 murder of innocent blood is really you know stained our country, and it's it's time to be overturned. What do you think the chances? Um, you don't have to put a percentage, but. Do you think it's a good chance that Roe versus Wade will be overturned? I do. You know, when the Supreme Court didn't initially say whether or not they were going to take up the Dobbs, it sat in the hopper for a long time. Actually, it sat in the hopper starting when Justice Ginsburg was still alive. And it was rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled whether or not the announcement of whether or not they were going to accept this. And so that was a little strange. And then Justice Ginsburg died and Justice Barrett was on the court and it sat in the hopper for about another seven months. And so I, everyone was wondering what is happening with Dobbs. And it doesn't usually take a year to decide whether or not to grant cert. So there was a lot of unknown. And once it was accepted, I think the general view was definitely optimism. And, you know, we have an alleged 6-3 majority right now. So even if Justice Roberts, who's now become a swing vote, goes to the left, we still have enough votes. And I think what the Supreme Court did in Texas, to me, gave me a lot of hope with the heartbeat ban. And so I think that there is reason to be very, very optimistic about this. Well, I guess, you know, it is disappointing that, you know, our even and I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, but that our court system all the way up to the Supreme Court really is filled with a bunch of partisans. Right. I mean, even the Texas law, which you mentioned, right, that should have been a unanimous decision because the case really didn't have merit. But, you know, we have ideologues in the Supreme Court and some are Catholic or at least in name who really have, have, you know, let partisanship take over their, their brains. And it, I guess it is disappointing that the law is only the law when it benefits them, and then otherwise they want to change. 
That's right. And especially in abortion jurisprudence, Justice Scalia would write about this a lot in his opinions, which is the abortion industry gets a total pass in any sort of legal norms applying to them. And it's very clear that the liberal justices find any way to uphold or to strike down a pro-life law, uphold a woman's so-called right to an abortion. It doesn't matter if there's not a proper defendant, such as in the Texas law. It doesn't matter that there's no clear guidance. They will find a way. And it's, and it's especially shown in the abortion context. And it's very upsetting. And we really do need to pray for courage for the justices because I believe they know exactly what to do. And we just need to pray that they have the courage to do that. Well, and, you know, we just heard recently that oral arguments will start what the first part of December. Um, is it? I guess, reasonable to think that, yes, oral arguments will be in December. Are they going to wait till June, you think, before we, as, you know, normally happens before we hear what their verdict actually is? That's right. Oral arguments will be December 1st, and it's impossible to know. Most likely June will be when the decision comes down. So, I mean, I know, obviously, you mentioned, you know, we need to pray for, you know, decision based on truth and, and life and everything. And so we always encourage prayer is the most that we can do. Is there anything else people can do other than, you know, obviously praying is important, but, you know, if, if, at this point, is it pretty much for, you know, uh, Joe and Jill Johnson, just, you know, you're a bystander now and just pray that they make the right decisions. There's really nothing else we can do, or is there? Well, no, I think if your state has a March for Life that's coming up, that's very important. The the mm -hmm. National March to Life is very important. I think the Supreme Court really needs to see that they are supported in this decision, that it will not impact their credibility if they strike down Roe. In fact, it actually will question their credibility if they uphold such bad law. But I think the court, especially Roberts, Kavanaugh, some of the more swing votes are very concerned concerned with how the court is received. And if they only feel any sort of political pressure or any sort of threat to the legitimacy of the court from the left, we certainly don't want to threat the court at all. But we do want to show there is a loud voice that supports the unborn and that once Roe gone. And so if you can show up at the peaceful demonstrations, such as the March for Life or your state March for Life, and really show them the pro-life majority, I think that will do a good bit uh, that would do good for the court to see. Well, obviously, there will be, as you mentioned, political pressure. Right, the the left and the abortion industry is a uh, is definitely a monster and and can be damning. I mean, I think I think it was just um, geez, was with the last month or so that people were protesting at, at Justice Kavanaugh's home. Uh, so the 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 other side is quite mobilized. Um, and, you know, now they're talking, you know, we've heard ever since the new administration came in, you know, expanding the court, packing the court so they can get decisions they want. So that that's always going to be there. But I think your point is well taken. Right. Those who have been in the pro-life movement continue. Uh, those who haven't get your button gear and get out there and start being peaceful and praying and and make your voice heard. But the really the political pressure is always going to be there, isn't it? That's right. And like you said, the other side knows the weaknesses, you know, justice. 
Kavanaugh, Justice Roberts, they're certainly not going and knocking down Justice Thomas's wall, who we know will do the right thing, who has the courage to do the right thing. They're going strategically to who they view as somebody they can sway based on their political pressure. And we don't want to take part in those tactics. We don't want to stoop that low. We do want to make it known, like I said, that we are the majority, we all, we support life, and that we are here to support them in doing the right thing. We're not asking them to do anything wrong. We're simply asking them to have the courage to do the right thing. So Roe, this, you know, let's assume Roe versus, or, you know, they, they support uh, the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health, right? Roe versus Wade, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, go down the toilet. And then it really is going to be they're going to they're going to end up saying, right, this is going to be a state by state issue. right? It's not going to be totally go away. It's not going to be more on the federal level. It's going to be states get to decide what their abortion policies are. Is that correct? That's right. Most people think if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion is going to be illegal everywhere, which would be great. Um, what would happen is the Supreme Court would overturn it and say this is left to the states. I do want to note there actually is a growing movement within the pro-life movement that it, that argues that abortion actually is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. The unborn were recognized as persons at the time the 14th Amendment was written. And this is still a minority view. However, it is growing. There were 16, I believe it was 16 amicus briefs filed arguing this. And so that is certainly a growing view within the movement that is gaining traction. But I by no means mean to imply that that's what the Supreme Court will rule. I am 99.999% confident that they will not rule that. (laughs) But, um, But it is something to note of as a growing movement within the court that I believe does have some credibility if you really get into the arguments that was published. Josh Craddock published it in the Harvard Law Journal of Public Policy. And ever since then, it really has some compelling arguments. But what most likely would happen is exactly what you said. This will go back to the states and like Texas, Mississippi, those pro-life states will be able to protect the unborn and California can have their abortion on demand without apology until birth, which is what they want. Well, and we saw it during COVID, right? When certain states like Texas shut down uh, abortions, Right. We had Colorado saying, come not only is a destination place to go skiing, but come here and get your abortion. So there's always going to be those states, unfortunately, that are governed by, you know, those that have no respect for life. Uh, so those that's going to be the case. But to be able to pick state by state uh, off and, and be able to be those pro-life states without, uh, you know, the courts intervening because the Mississippi court, if I remember correctly, this was passed back in 2018 and the courts have put it on hold, right? Until the Supreme court's going to have to decide. Well, that's right. I mean, even the fifth circuit, which is a conservative circuit, which is where Mississippi falls under, had to say, look, under Roe and Casey, we just can't uphold this law. I think it again notes to the fact that constitutionally conservative justices are willing to apply the law that they are bound by under Supreme Court precedent versus just trying to find a way to achieve their goal policy-wise. So even the Fifth Circuit had to say, 
look, we cannot uphold this law. And so it, there, that's why it went to the Supreme Court and why it's in the hands of the court now. Well, I mean, you know, Texas was clever in the way they designed theirs because they're trying to, you know, eliminate abortion. They did it, uh, you know, for at six weeks, if I remember right. But they had to come up with, you know, kind of a clever approach where those, you know, individuals could sue for up to $10,000, I think, you know, those that are, you know, participating and actively engaged in abortions, they would be able to be much more overt if Roe versus Wade goes, as opposed to trying to do this trickery uh, to, to circumvent what they know will get, you know, uh, shot down, right? That's right. Texas was brilliant in their strategy. And under Roe versus Wade and Casey um, precedent, you know, there's only so much a state can do with the government enforcing a pro-life law. So Texas didn't have that luxury of just being able to protect the unborn, have the government enforce that. So they had to come up with something else, which, like I said, was absolutely brilliant. It is a lot weaker in the enforcement mechanism side of it because it relies on civilian individuals and the government has no power. They were stripped of their power. So it's certainly not best case scenario in an ideal world. In an ideal world, that Texas would be able to just say, At the moment of conception, abortion is banned and the government would have the authority to criminalize any abortionist that violates that law. But again, since we are not in an ideal land yet, hopefully we will be starting next June, they had to come up with a more creative side. And so under our current regime, it's brilliant. And for the first time since Roe, abortion is essentially outlawed in a state in the United States of America. Countless lives have been saved. So I am just a big fan of what Texas just did, but hopefully it will not be needed soon. I totally agree. Now, we just had, you know, the House and, you know, Nancy Pelosi and and gang, you know, just passed this Women's Health Protection Act. I think it passed 218 to 211, uh, which basically codifies abortion at any time, anywhere, and the government pays for it. Is this really going to be, I mean, it's probably not going to pass, you know, the Senate uh, with the filibuster, but is this just, you know, kind of a I guess just trying to show that they support abortion because once the Supreme Court rules, this what the what the House does is really not going to be that important, right? I think. I mean, I definitely think if this right now it's not a threat in the sense that, like you said, I don't think it's going to pass the Senate. I do think that if this were to be passed and signed into law, there would be some serious legal challenges to it, whether or not this touches interstate commerce at the level that they think it does, that they would certainly argue is a question. So, I mean, I will be honest, I think that they would have some good legal arguments as to why they do have the authority to do this. I think that there's even stronger legal arguments saying that they don't have the authority to do this. And I would hope that our Supreme Court, our current makeup of the court, the court that was bold enough to follow through and overturn Roe, would see the shenanigans of their or of their arguments saying that they have the authority to do this. Yeah, it almost feels like they think they're going to lose. So what can we do legislatively uh, to, to gain the upper hand? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think they're trying to once again threaten the Roberts court, just like they do. I think their court packing is one giant threat to not overturn Roe versus Wade to make the court feel like if you overturn Roe, we will strip you of all your power by packing the court. I think this is a similar idea of showing them it doesn't matter what you do, abortion is still going to be legalized here, which I don't think they realize that's exactly what the conservatives on the court want in the sense that, yeah, we want elected officials making decisions like this. We don't want to be making the decisions like this. So if Nancy Pelosi was trying to to threaten the court, she should know that it's really their argument, the court's argument would be elected officials should be making this, but really not federal officials. This should be made at the state level, if at all. So I I hope the court is not sees through Nancy Pelosi's games. Well, we've seen the federal government has, has, you know, basically tried to rule the states. And that's exactly what, you know, the signers of our constitution did not want. They wanted state power with the, with the government to do, roads and military and that type of thing but we've definitely seen the federal government uh try to override the states and look we've seen you know a president of the united states threaten governors in texas and florida over the covid stuff and so it really is a big power play how can you know we're down to the last uh last couple minutes how can people follow what you're doing i know you're saying you're coming out with an article on you know these these women athletes and, and their brief, uh, how can people follow what you're doing and really follow this case so they know what's going on between now and we hear the ruling? Yeah, I tweet a lot of the um, work that I do. My Twitter handle is at underscore Catherine Beck K A T H E R I N E Beck. B-E-C-K. So I'll tweet out a lot of my writings. If you go to our FRC website, they'll be on the blog there. It's frc.org. Or if you want to sign up for our Washington update stories, Tony Perkins, our president, will send out update stories every day. Some of my writings are in there, but if not, it's a great resource for information. And some of my other colleagues have been writing on this as well. So frc.org will also have a lot of great resources. You guys do great work at the Family Research Council. I do encourage people to go to the website and and see all the things you cover. I mean, we've had a lot of your, uh, you know, associates on the radio on various different topics. And you guys really do follow what's going on, know what's going on. And it's a good way for people really to kind of find out what's going on to kind of cut through all the lies and the smoke screens that if you're watching the news that you're going to get. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just. The media like we, like has such a tent and has such an agenda. So to be able to just say, okay, especially if we have Catholic listeners on here, to just the Christ, the Catholic, well, FRC is Christian. I am Catholic. So just seeing the Catholic worldview or the Christian worldview of things on our policy and our matters and everything else is really important as well. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.